come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 207 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So in this episode here for you, I'm going to be having my Traverse of the Threes, number 27. And this is going to be featuring two movies that, at first I didn't think made the greatest double feature, but as I was kind of like looking at it and analyzing it a bit, it actually has an interesting little through line. And the first one is going to be When Evil Lurks. This is my 2023 release. That is the new one from the director of Terrified that came out a few years ago. And then I have this paired up with Mesa of Lost Women. So on the surface levels, this isn't a great double feature, but both of them take place in the, well, the first one takes place in the like rural area of Argentina where Mesa of Lost Women takes place in the deserts of Mexico. So we have two movies that are taking place outside of the city in a North American and a South American country. Both of them, I believe, are Spanish-speaking as well. So then to go along with this, so I have many reviews, is on Friday the 13th, I watched Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. I gave a rewatch to Malum, which is a 2023 release. Then I also got to watch a documentary at work of Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, the Robert England story. Then I gave a rewatch to Sweet 16, that is my Traverse of the Threes movie that is from 1983 that I've seen before. And then I also gave a watch to the movie Sisters. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get to speed with here for this intro, so I will say is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review is, in honor of there being a Friday the 13th, I went ahead and watched the next one in the box set that I haven't seen on Blu-ray, which was Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. This is from 1985. This was directed by Danny Steinman. This is written between Martin Kit Rosser, David Cohen, and Danny Steinman as well. Then this stars Melanie Kinneman, John Shepard, and Anthony Barely. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a... 2.3 on Letterboxd with the Snops being still haunted by his past, Tommy Jarvis, who as a child killed Jason Voorhees, is sent to a secluded halfway house in the countryside where the killing of a young man triggers a brutal series of murders in the area. So this one, if you want to hear a mini review, I actually watched this back on episode 132, which was Trek the Twos number six that featured Offseason and Chandu the Magician. Not a great double feature there, but there are supernatural elements at play. But this is one that was actually very neutered by the like ratings board and everything like that but this one's a lot of fun there's a lot of kills there's a lot of nudity i mean we see like deborah Voorhees. i know she's topless in this one this actually has an appearance by or cameos by Corey feldman and michael a nunez i know they don't have anything getting nude there but there's just a ton of characters we get a lot of people that are just murdered off necessarily don't know why for some of these people but you know that's you know it is what it is there and i mean this isn't the best in the series but i still have respect as a popcorn slasher 
And it's actually one that I've watched a lot because this one always seemed to be on the movie channels. So it was kind of weird not necessarily understanding it until I got a bit older with who the person is, you know, behind everything. This one tries to do something different. And for me, that works. I think there's actually a way that this would have been really good if they would have followed a certain path. I'd say that the acting here is fine. The effects were neutered, as I was saying, but what they do is still good. The soundtrack isn't the best either, but I still like what Harry Manfredini is doing with it. This is an above-average movie for me, just coming up short of being good. If you like the series or slasher movies, this is a fun one, and I would say check this one out. And, I mean, I'm much higher than the ratings on IMDb and everything like that. Like, I'm not the biggest slasher fan, but, I mean, this has, you know, a huge group of characters that are kind of fun. They're distinct enough, maybe not necessarily always fitting where they are, but... I have Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, as a 7.5 out of 10. And for my next mini-review here is going to be one that's very short because this is actually a rewatch from something earlier this year of Malum. This is from here in 2023. This was directed by Anthony de Blasi, who also co-wrote this with Scott Pioli. This stars Jessica Shula, Natalie Victoria, and Monroe Klein. This is a drama horror thriller film that is a co-production of Italy and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being. A rookie police officer willingly takes the last shift at a newly decommissioned police station in an attempt to uncover the mysterious connection between her father's death and a vicious cult. So this is one that if you'd like to hear a featured review, it's going to be episode... 179, which was Traverse of the Threes number two, as I had this paired up with Murders in the Zoo. And this is having two interesting locations, one being a zoo, one being a police station. But if you're not aware, this one is a remake of Last Shift, which the director, and I believe he also wrote that one, did. And I rather enjoyed this version. I'm at a disadvantage still, as I have not seen that original version, so I've watched this more polished one. And I'm definitely going to go back and check it out here at some point. But this does things that I love. We have a terrifying setting in this abandoned police station, and I've actually heard somebody compare this to being like Assault on Precinct 13 meeting Prince of Darkness, you know, those two John Carpenter films. I like that we have a cult here, and there could be demons that are, you know, kind of coming after everybody and things like that. There's a Lovecraftian vibe here as well. I love that the ritual that was done, and that could also be why this place is haunted. There's also this idea of a logical explanation where there is this black mold that is in the holding cells. So maybe our main character of Jessica is hallucinating, or maybe there's actually something going on here. thought the acting was solid for the most part. I will give credit here to, um, let me see what his name is here before... Chaney Morrow is John Malum. He is the cult leader. I think his crew is great. It's kind of fun to see um, Clark Wolf here. As I remember hearing her on some podcasts and everything like that. So seeing her as Dorothea is interesting. And I was actually saying Jessica Shula plays Jessica Lawrence. She's our lead character. I do think there's a little bit of overacting that I've noticed here. I do hate to say this, but like the mother of Candace Coke, I think she does a little bit of overacting. And there's some of the minor people that might be as well. But this just feels like a nightmare. Definitely an homage to Italian cinema there. I just don't necessarily know where the seams of our world are as opposed to that. So there's a lot of things going on in this movie that I liked. My rating definitely stayed the same. I think this actually, I don't know if it will ever go higher for me, but this is a Solid 8 for me, so that's what I'm going to give to Malum here after both watches, and that is definitely solidified for me. Then I got to watch a documentary, and that is going to be Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, the Robert England story. This is from 2022, but it got its wide release here this year. I watched it on Screenbox, but this is directed between Christopher Griffiths and Gary Smart. Now, Smart also wrote this with Neil Morris. This stars Lynn Shea, Heather Langenkamp, Miko Hughes, and, of course, Robert England. This is a documentary that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being. Robert England has become one of the most revolutionary horror icons of our generation. This intimate portrait captures the man behind Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and features interviews. And they're also including here uh, Eli Roth, Tony Todd, and more. So I will agree with this. This is an interesting documentary and it's detailing the life of England and how the role of Freddy Krueger changed his life. Now I grew up on A Nightmare on Elm Street as well as the other series. No, like the movies in the others, the movies in the series. I fall into that camp where I was terrified as a child and the older I got, the more that I respected England as an actor and come to just really enjoy this character. Now he's one that I've sought out different things that he's been in and learned more about him as a person. So this doc tick boxes for me. 
what I'll say is this is well made. I love interviewing England who is recapping his life through like you know his eyes and everything like that. So in a vein, this is like an autobiography since he is telling us about his life. What is great though is that we get to hear from other actors around him. Again, this features the likes of Shay, Heather Langenkamp, Hughes, Roth, Lance Henriksen, Monica Kina, Todd, Amanda Wiss, Kane Hodder, Bill Mosley, and Jill Sholin. Now, these people will come in at different times, and they're recapping England's career as they kind of saw it, as they worked with him. And I love hearing about him and, you know, hoping you don't make it, how a nightmare in Elm Street happened. And he was already a star, though, on television with the show V, and how it affected him from there. Now, it's fun to think about there was a time where he was struggling and hoping to make it. I grew up in a world where he was already a star. Now, this documentary isn't horror, but a bulk of England's career falls into that. It is funny that he didn't set out to be a star in the genre. It just kind of happened. I love hearing younger actors and filmmakers just saying how great of a personality he is, that he was always out to help those around him, even from the beginning, and how he's just a great time to talk to. He's classically trained, so that's even the wilder thing that he was Freddy Krueger. And he's also one of those celebrities that I want to meet as I've never heard a bad thing about an interaction with him. So then to close out my thoughts... The filmmaking behind this is great. I love editing in a footage of different works. It gives you a better understanding and a look at his performances. It still is wild to think of a guy who haunted me as a young child has more range than other slasher killers of the era. This character has given him the most personality, or this character actually has the most personality of those killers, and England was perfect for it. If you're a fan of A Nightmare on Elm Street, horror from the 80s, or just of England himself, I'd highly recommend giving this a watch for sure. So my rating here for Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, the Robert England story, is going to be an 8 out of 10, the highest that I can give for a documentary. And then my next mini review for you is going to be Sweet 16. This is from 1983. This is directed by Jim Sotos. This was written by Erwin Goldman. This stars Bo Hopkins, Susan Strasberg, and Patrick McNee. This is a crime horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being teenager Melissa moves into a small town filled with racial prejudices and bullying and each time she meets up with one of the boys in town they end up murdered but who is the killer? So this is a film that I really knew nothing about until I came in to see it. It was part of a double feature that Bloody Disgusting was doing as part of their retro nightmares. The only thing that I knew was that this was a slasher film. I've also given it a second watch now as part of my Traverse of the Threes, as I didn't remember a whole lot about this one, so I was kind of excited to revisit it. So what I'll say is I like the story here. That normally isn't the case for slashers, but this one had me guessing all the way to the climax, which is well done. This is a great job at using red herrings and making you try to figure out who the killer is. And it's interesting that they are mostly following Melissa, and she is portrayed by Alicia Shirley. I think that's how you'd say her first name. It's got a definite weird spelling. But it makes it more interesting that she's a bit wild and flirty. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that her family moves around a lot. So she doesn't waste a lot of time. And she also makes questionable decisions. So I'll credit Shirley for her performance as she embodies this character. Now something else I want to touch on is the racism in this film. It is interesting that this is, you know, we're still dealing with it today, 40 plus years after this came out. This is taking place in Texas. The hate is towards Native Americans, but we still see this all over the country and even the world. And it's towards minorities there. It is sad, but I like that Dan is trying to defuse things before they get crazy. Now, he is Sheriff Dan Burke, portrayed by Hopkins. Now, we have Billy and Jimmy, who are... I mean, Billy Franklin is portrayed by Don Strode, who's a you know great performance there. And Jimmy is portrayed by Logan Clark. Now, they're quite despicable human beings. And we see disastrous results towards Greyfeather, portrayed by Henry Wilcoxon. And then we also have... Jason Longshadow portrayed by Don Shanks. Now, there's a bit here that I want to point out that I thought was odd that we have Hank and Johnny are hanging out at a bar when they're high school students. We have Johnny who is portrayed by Glenn Withrow. He is a younger brother to Billy in this movie. And then Hank is portrayed by Steve Anton and his father is the sheriff and he also has a sister of Marcy portrayed by Dana Kimmel. 
Now, those two boys, I mean, what I was going to say is them hanging out at the bar, I guess, is this an extremely small town, so I get part of it. And I mean, where else could they go? Now, we have a boy later of Tommy jo Jackson, portrayed by Tony Perfect. Now, he wants to meet Melissa behind the place, and she was going there in the beginning. Found this a little bit odd as well, but adding to this, we have the creepiness of Billy and Jimmy making lewd comments towards Melissa. She is 15, and her Sweet 16 party is the climax. Again, small town, so I can believe this. So let's go over to the acting. I've always said that having good characters is one element for a slasher for it to work for me. Hopkins was good as a sheriff. He gives off a hard but fair attitude. His children like him, and he is just a good guy. He fits the hero role that we need. Susan Strasberg is good as Joanne Morgan. She doesn't have a lot of screen time, but I thought she was good for what was needed. McNee was solid. Strode is such a horrible human being, but I thought his portrayal was good, and that's what was needed. Same goes for Clark. Kimmel is super cute, and I thought she was interesting that she's into true crime. She so badly wants to help her father, so there's a bit of humor there, and she also he also humors her a bit. And then Shirley was gorgeous, and we get to see her completely nude a couple of times, so if you're looking for that, that's in there. But I thought the rest of the cast was fine for what was needed. All that's left is filmmaking. I thought the effects were good. They were done practically, which, if you know me, then I'm a big fan of that. This film is strategically cuts away, so it isn't all that graphic. I thought the blood looked good. They don't do a lot with the kills, but the other part of a slasher that I look for is that. There are talks about Native American knives, which are found at a nearby dig site. I'm not sure if they were used in any of the murders, but I thought that would be a good twist if they did. We do see one at the very end, and I'll say the cinematography here was solid. We get some point of view of the killer, a staple of the genre, and we have a solid soundtrack to go with this. So in conclusion, I thought this was a solid one and well done slasher film. I came in seeing this blind about this one and was pleasantly surprised by it. I like the mystery of this young woman turning 16 soon and going on dates only to have each of these boys murdered. It helps with building the mystery and who could be doing it. There's an interesting undertones of racism that are still relevant today. I also say the filmmaking was good. We have some interesting characters, solid kills, and the soundtrack worked for what was needed. I'm not always the biggest fan of this subgenre, but this is one of the lesser talked about standouts for me. We are also still early on into the slasher boom, and we're still using that holiday horror of sorts. So if you're a slasher fan, check this one out. So my rating here for Sweet 16 is actually, I've actually came up a whole point, and I give this one an 8 out of 10. And for my last mini review here is going to be Sisters. This is from 1972. It was directed by Brian De Palma, who co-wrote this with Lisa Rose. And I actually believe De Palma came up with the story. This stars Margot Kidder, Jennifer Salt, and Charles Durning. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb. Nice. And a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, a small-time reporter tries to convince the police that she saw a murder in the apartment across from hers. So this is a movie that I heard about through podcasts and like groups that are associated with horror movies. Now, what is interesting is that I knew this was co-written and directed by De Palma who made my favorite movie of all time in Scarface. I knew he did thriller and like horror stuff before that, but it is a disconnect that I have that I kind of forget that he has this type of back catalog. So I decided to watch this as a October movie challenge movie and one that I've been you know meaning to watch for some time, just hadn't gotten around to it. So where I'm going to start is that De Palma gets accused a lot of borrowing from Alfred Hitchcock and I get the vibes of Rear Window here. So we have Grace, who is portrayed by Salt, as she sees a murder across the way. She tries to relay this to the police, but she is lacking evidence. What I like is that we see Emil, who is portrayed by the great William Finley, and Danielle, portrayed by Kidder, as they're trying to dispose of the body. There are even vibes of frenzy here in that we know what is in this specific truck. That is where the comparison for me ends, though. Outside of the fact that De Palma does a great job at building suspense as Grace investigates what happened to Philip. And he is portrayed by Lissel Wilson. I think that's how you'd say that name. So I want to go over to this character next. And I'll say that Salt does an amazing job here. I like the commentary of how the police do not like her. She has questioned their methods in the past. So instead of just doing their job, there is resistance to wanting to help her. Part of this is that, you know, what she is saying is that there's lacking evidence for it. Emil and Danielle have cleaned up and hid the body. There's an aspect that if they listened to her from the beginning, then they wouldn't have had enough time to kind of hide all the evidence. Now, there is a patented De Palma split screen to show us the cleanup while Grace talks to the cops. That was a good touch, and it drives up the tension. Grace is doing what she thinks is right, but it's hindering her as well. So there's another interesting aspect here. Grace follows Emil and Danielle after they leave the apartment. 
There's another tent scene at the climax at an institute that Emil works at. Danielle spent time there. This does well in filling the backstory as well. There's an aspect of Emil gaslighting Grace, making her seem crazy, and his staff is following it. I can see the commentary here as this would go to the not-too-distant past, listening to women make a claim and then chalking it up to hysteria, then having her hospitalized because of it. I was concerned that she would be silenced, which is another positive in this film. Now, we also have one more bit here with the commentary that is Grace claiming the police aren't looking into what happened to Philip because he is black. It is done by a white woman. I do think that there is, you know, her crying wolf, but she believes what she says, just the cops don't. She can't prove anything, though, so I do side with the police, even though I've seen what happened. There is a fine line between treading on Danielle's rights without some sort of proof. So the last bit for the story I found interesting is the fact that Danielle and Dominique are conjoined at birth. Grace seeks out Arthur McLennan, who is portrayed by Bernard Hughes. Now, he wrote an article for a major magazine about them. He shows a secret film about how they couldn't be separated due to where they were attached. The surgery needed to be done, and there was unethical things that happened. We also get a reveal to the outcome. I did predict part of this, to be honest. Now, there's a surreal element that also happens when Grace goes to the Institute as she is drugged. It confused me at first, but I think I made sense of it after everything got put on the table. I did enjoy that they were, like, there to hear and then, like, also to kind of reveal the information. So that should be enough for the story, so I want to go over to the acting. I've already said that Salt was good. I thought that Kidder was excellent. She is mostly Danielle from what we see. Her French accent isn't great, but I enjoyed it. She did seem like someone who isn't a native speaker of English, which was good. She's also cute. I like seeing Finley here. He's just an oddball character actor, and he worked for Emil. The deeper we get into the story, the more interested and scarier he becomes. I like the cameo by Durning. Good to see him not as a villain, and I also liked that we have in this Wilson, Hughes, I would even say that Dolph Sweet and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. All that is left then is filmmaking. I thought the cinematography was great. The editing will get pulled into here as well as I think that it works in conjunction with each other that raise tension. I've already brought up the split screen that I like there and I like to see you know two different things happen at the same time. You want the murder to be discovered but seeing how they avoid detection got me anxious. I expect a well shot film when seeing De Palma attached. The effects are limited but what we got there was good. I think the blood we saw was a bit bright. I have a soft spot for that. Other than that, I think that Bernard Herman did an odd but effective soundtrack. Not his best, but still better than most. So in conclusion, I'm mad for holding on to seeing this one as long as I did. I think that we have an interesting story here. I've, it's been done before to an extent, but De Palma adds his artistic flair to it. The acting helps bring these characters to life. I like what they do with the filmmaking from the cinematography and the editing to the soundtrack. This is one that I think more people should see if they haven't. Not my favorite from him, but it makes me appreciate De Palma even more as a filmmaker. So my rating here for Sisters is going to be an 8 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do then is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. en el pueblo. Estás asustando a mi familia. ¡Lo vi con mis propios ojos! ¡Estuve con él! Esto va a ser un infierno. Encontrar a la bestia antes de que nazca más. 
tiempos de la fe. Se terminan rápido. And for my first featured review here is going to be When Evil Lurks. This goes by the original title of Siando Aichi La Maldad. This is from here in 2023. It was written and directed by Demian Rugna. This stars Ezekiel Rodriguez, Luis Zambroski, and Damien Salomon. I do mispronounce any of your names or any of the ones I'm about to go into. I do apologize, but this also is featuring... Frederico Liss, Silvana Sabator, Desiree Salguero, Emilio Vandovich, Virginia Garofalo, Paula Rubinstein, and Marcello Michinaw. But this is a horror film that is from a co-production of the United States and Argentina. This is sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being. In a remote village, two brothers find a demon-infected man just about to give birth to evil itself. They decide to get rid of the man, but merely succeed in spreading the chaos. So this is one that I saw playing at the Gateway Film Center. It tended to be later in the day, and it was hard for me to stay up thanks to my daughter not sleeping the greatest. So I heard some good things surrounding this one. So I made it a point that I would, once I found an early showing and on Sunday, that I went to the theater to see this. A bonus was that I didn't realize this was the guy behind Terrified until I believe my buddy Tim Walker had said something, which I really like that film as well. So let me do some of those featured notes then before I get into the movie itself, and I'll start with our director of Rugna. Now, he has helmed nine films. I've seen two. His other one was great with Terrified, as I was saying. He has done six in genre with one being a short. I have not seen Satanic Hispanics yet, but it's on my list, as I believe Gigi Saul Guerrero is also involved in that one. Now, he also has Malitos Shun and Alerta Renciento de Cavadares, which both of these kind of intrigue me if I can find those, but... We also have a Fabian Forte helped with some additional directing with him. He has six in this role. I've seen two. Only two in genre as well were the same two that I've seen from Rugna. And then let's go over to Rugna as a writer. He has eight with one short. I've seen the same two. Six in horror with writing Death Knows Your Name, Lo Siestro, and They Want My Eyes. Now he also wrote that Maldonito Shon. Then over to the cast. I will look at Rodriguez first. He has been in 11 movies. I've only ever seen this one. He has four total in horror with Legions, The Witch Game, and Maria. I have not heard of any of these other three. Then over to Salomon. He has 16 credits, two shorts, and 14 films. I've seen two of his works. He has eight in genre. I've seen this in Terrified. I have not seen Welcome to Hell, Legions, Into the Abyss, I Am Toxic, The Unburied, or Maria. Looks like he's worked with Rodriguez before. And then let's look at Saboteur. Now, she has been in Seven Things. I've only ever seen this. Only one that she's done in horror. Then I'm also going to credit Ziembrowski. He has been in five shorts and 60 movies. I've only ever seen this. He has five in genre with Memory of the Dead, The Rotten Link, The Owner, and Lo Siestro with Rugda. I've only ever seen this one, though, here. All right, then. Let's get into the movie itself. Now, I believe that this takes place, what I'm guessing is Argentina. The two brothers are Pedro, portrayed by Rodriguez, and Jaime, portrayed by Salomon. Now, they hear gunshots. Jaime wonders if it's poachers, but Pedro points out that they wouldn't be shooting as much as they are. They'd be sneakier. Morning is coming, so at first light, they go out to look. It turns out that the person who was shooting was what they call a cleaner, and he was looking for a nearby woman. So then, he ends up going out to that woman's place and asks about the man, and it turns out her older son is Ariel, and he has become a rotten. So this is what the synopsis is talking about, that he's possessed by an unborn demon who is awaiting physical birth. Pedro questions why he wasn't dealt with, and the man they found dismembered was heading out here to do that. Our two brothers go to the police who won't help. It sounds like the information is known about Ariel. Now, the mayor even knows about it, but he has been on a massive delay in helping. So then a nearby farmer of Ruiz, portrayed by Zimbrowski, wants a son dealt with. There are rules, though. One of them is that you cannot kill or harm the rotten, or it will bring the demon into the world. They instead decide to move it and drop him off far away. This becomes a problem is that they didn't notice the body fall out the bed of the truck. This causes the brothers to panic. 
They head to the house of Pedro's ex-wife and her family. From what I gather, he left her. Their older son is severely autistic. There's also a younger boy. Now, his ex-wife has a daughter with her new husband. Now, with Pedro showing up unannounced, stripping down naked, and demanding new clothes, he also wants them to pack as he's afraid the evil will spread here. Now, there's another rule about not encountering items that were close to the rotten. Even though this duel had the best intentions, their decisions to create a domino effect that will pull anyone they meet into the situation, and there is a limited time here before it is too late. So that's how I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters where I was able to find the names for. Where I want to start is that this movie was stressful in the best ways possible. What we're getting here is a different take on a haunting possession film. It also feels like we're in the same world as this previous film of Terrified. What I think I like best here is that the evil can spread easier than we realize and to contain it, it's much harder. This bit got my anxiety up. Now that I've said that, I want to put this in the same vein of something like The Dark and the Wicked or even like a dark song. The reason that I say this is that we're in a small isolated town. This also takes place mostly in rural areas. That is why it reminded me of the former. Now the problem is that the decisions made get the evil closer to town where there are more potential victims. The reason I brought that up with the latter one is they have such strict rules in order to contain this. And actually, that's the only bit of trivia that is online. This is actually listed as a spoiler, but I don't think so. There's actually seven rules for dealing with the rotted and the possessed are roughly do not use electric lights. The shadows will cast, draw them in, stay away from animals, do not harm them, take nothing close to them. They are attached to it. Never say their names that cause to them. Never use a gun. They'll die. You'll die yourself. Do not fear. If you fear, a hole will open one under your feet. So that's kind of an interesting little thing that they have like these rules set up. So then much like in a dark song, the ritual that is, takes so much care and attention to detail, that is what we have in this movie. The tension ramps up with the evil spreading so easily as opposed to what you must do to prevent it. This was well done. So I do have a confession. I was exhausted and probably dozed off a couple times in the theater. I'm not entirely sure if I missed anything or how long I was actually asleep, but I do need to rewatch this before the end of the year. Going along with this, I want to know if the lore here is based in regional beliefs or just made up for the movie. Regardless of the answer, it feels like our writer and director of Rugna knows the answers to this question. If he made it up, it seems like he knows all the ins and outs. Even if he doesn't, it feels like it to me, and that's all I really want when it comes to folklore that I'm not familiar with. So there's a bit here I haven't brought up yet, and that's Rugna loves to put children in peril in his movies. Now that I'm a parent, this hits me harder. There is something with a dog that made me gasp audibly in the theater and made me sit up. Knowing that no one is safe makes it ramp up the tension as well. There's also a good number of children in this movie, so that adds on top of it. So that should be enough for the story. Let me go over to the acting. I've already said that I didn't have a full cast list. I will say that Rodriguez and Salomon are good as the two brothers. We follow the former a bit more since he has a family. They play well off of each other and they create bigger problems when they're trying to fix things. Then Zimbrowski was also solid in his role. I will credit Liz, Saboteur, Sal Guerrero, Vondanvich, Gafaralo, Rubensteins, and Mikona. If I see an updated cast list, I would be happy to credit each one to the role they played, but at this time, they all work and the acting was solid across the board. So all that's left then would be the filmmaking. Rugna does, a, does so well at capturing that feel of the small town in the surrounding area. The isolated feeling is good. What is terrifying, though, is the idea that this could happen and the rest of the world, if the evil gets out, could be affected. I'll credit the cinematography to capture that. It also is scary knowing that there isn't anyone coming to help them either. I do love the effects that we got. They are brutal and practical from there, from what I could see at least, and that is a plus. I'll also credit the sound design, which adds to the atmosphere, and the soundtrack also fits for what was needed. And I'm also going to sit here and say that now that I'm thinking about it, that Saboteur, she is an older woman that they seek refuge with, and then she also seems to have some experience being a cleaner or dealing with these spirits, so she does an excellent job as well. So in conclusion, this is a movie that got under my skin in the best ways possible. I love the different takes that Rugna does with the Haunting Possession film. He incorporates different ideas and folklore into it, so that could be part of it. Either way, this is a tired subgenre that he is breathing different life into. I'd say this is well made from the cinematography to the effects and the sound design as well. So the acting is good across the board. The fear that they convey with the images that we see works so well in unison. I will warn you that this is in Spanish, so I had to watch it with subtitles, but if that's an issue, I'd avoid it. If not, this is contending for my top of my end of year list right now. 
I'm excited to get in that rewatch if I am possible and able to as well. So then my rating here is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. And I'm also not going to do a spoiler section, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Have you ever been kissed by a woman like this? This is the story of an adventure so fantastic and horrible as to make a man of science doubt his senses. See the dance of destruction as Tarantula entices men to a strange fate. Lost women, lost because they were born without human souls. Children of abominable deviltry and twisted science, unleashed by insanity. He has human beauty and intelligence, still possesses the capacities and instincts of the giant spider. Who could have shot him? Nobody shot him. Look, these are not bullet wounds. What could have killed him? I don't know. I hope we won't have to find out. Aren't you afraid, Grant? I'm scared stiff. If you're frightened, what do you call him? I'm getting out of here. The terror of mortal man, paralyzed with fear, bereft of reason, facing the horror of the giant hexapod. <laughs> And for my second featured review is going to be Mesa of Lost Women. This is from 1953. It was directed between Ron Ormond and Herbert Tavos. Now, Tavos also wrote this. And it looks like there's some uncredited work by Orville H. Hampton. Now, this stars Jackie Coogan, Alan Nixon, and Richard Travis, while also featuring Lyle Talbot, Paula Hill, Robert Knapp, Tandra Quinn, Chris Penn Martin, Harmon Stevens, Nico Leck, Kelly Drake, John Martin, George Barrows, Candy Collins, Dolores Fuller, Dean Reisner, Doris Lee Price, and Mona McKinnon. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 2.7 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd with our Snops being a mad scientist named... Aranya is creating giant spiders and dwarves in his lab on Zarpa Mesa in Mexico. He wants to create a master race of superwomen by injecting his female subjects with spider venom. So this movie that I feel like I saw the title in passing but didn't know about it until looking for horror from 1953. Title was intriguing. I did read a bit of the synopsis ahead of pressing play while making sure this was the correct movie. Other than that, I came into this one blind. So let me do some of the featured notes before I get into the movie. And let me start with our directors. And the first is Armand. He has 28 movies that he's directed. I've only ever seen this one. He's done five in genre with If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do, The Burning Hell, The Exotic Ones, and The Grim Reaper. So, and then this one obviously be the fifth. The posters are intriguing for these other ones, so I'm excited to check them out. So his co-director of Tavos, this is the only thing he's done. Now he's also the writer, and this is the only credit there. So there's also that uncredited work from Hampton, who has 57 films in one short. He has four that he's credited for in horror with The Alligator People, The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, The Snake Woman, and Beauty and the Beast. I didn't actually see from what year this one was from, but I'm saying like 60s probably. But I've only ever seen this one here. And then to look at our cast, I will start with Coogan first. He has a long career with 74 movies and 13 shorts. I've only ever seen two. Six are horror with The Prey, Human Experiments, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, The Phantom of Hollywood, and a TV movie of Halloween with the Addams Family, since he actually was the original Uncle Fester in that run. I've only ever seen this one here, though. Then I will look at Nixon, who has 11 movies. I've only ever seen this, and this is the only one that is in genre. 
Oh, I should also say, going back to Coogan real quick, I've watched High School Confidential. He was in that movie. That's a weird, like, flick from 1958 where he's Mr. A in that one. So he must have been an adult there. But, yeah, I guess that would, that would, that would track. I also then look at Nixon, as I was saying, who has 11 movies. I've only ever seen this, and this is the only one in genre. Last will be Travis. He has been in 38 films in one short. I've only ever seen this. He did one other one in genre with Missile to the Moon from 58, but I've not seen that one as of yet. So, we start this off with seeing a man kiss a woman. Now she has long nails. A narrator kicks in to say, have you ever been kissed by a woman like this? It then sets the stage of what we're going to get here. This narrator is Talbot, by the way. So we have Grant Will Phillips, portrayed by Knapp, and he is with Doreen Culbertson, portrayed by Hill. They are found wandering in the desert. The reason is that their plane crashed. It is surprising that they were found since this desert is known as Desert of Death. I'm not really sure what they used for the Spanish term, but I know Muerta or Muerto is what they use for whatever. I digress. They were lucky since they are oil surveyors out here. And they are Frank, portrayed by John Martin, and then Pepe, portrayed by Chris Pin Martin. They ask how they survived, and that is what, you know, ends up leading them to tell us what happened, why they were lost. So we have a Dr. Aranya has taken up residence in a remote cave on this mesa. He has a Dr. Leland J. Masterson, portrayed by Stevens, come to his laboratory to see his experiments. Both men admire each other, and Dr. Aranya makes an offer to have Dr. Masterson help him. Seeing what he's doing out here, he refuses. This causes a Dr. Aranya to instead use this other doctor in his experiments as a subject. To give a bit more information, Dr. Aranya decided to inject spider venom into women and creates a Tatartelon. I think that's how you'd say that. Now, she's portrayed by Quinn, and then there's others that are helping him out here as like henchmen and henchwomen. Now, they are stronger and able to heal, taking attributes from arachnids. And as I say, there's other experiments done on other animals and insects. Not all of them are successful, and we kind of see that with one of the people that are there. Or actually, quite a few people there, I should say. So, in the nearby town, people fear what is happening out in the desert. We have a newly married couple on their wedding night get stranded when their pilot was forced to land. Doreen is married to Jean Von Croft, portrayed by Lech. This seems like she married him for his money and security. It's actually kind of interesting because Grant Phillips is the pilot and it seems like they might have had a fling. And there might still be feelings there as well. But then this couple goes into the bar for dinner where they encounter Dr. Masterson. He takes a liking to Doreen and it seems like he's in a trance. Tarotella shows up and does a dance that draws everyone's attention. There's a Doc Tucker, I think that's who this is, and he's portrayed by Nixon, who shows up trying to take Dr. Masterson back to the hospital. So instead, Masterson pulls a gun. He shoots Tarotella, saying that he doesn't like her. <laughs> he takes the newlyweds and this doctor hostage, forcing them to the airplane. Now, Grant is a pilot, as I was saying. He's also forced to fly this group over the desert. So I should say, joining them is Wu, portrayed by Samuel Wu, and then the plane can't take what they're fortunate to do so they have to land on zarpa mesa they feel like they're being watched from the woods dr aranya learns of their arrival and might have a hand in causing this setting his sights on new subjects so that's where i'm gonna leave my recap introduction of the characters where i want to start all right i should say is i this is what i think of now of like cheesy 1950s sci-fi horror and i feel like going forward this is going to be the first thing that pops in my head when i do it feels like this watched other films that came out in the previous decade and then tried to borrow some of the ideas. That's not to say that this doesn't have good aspects to it. The first would be the setting. I love being on the middle of the desert that isolates Dr. Aranya so he could do his thing without being disturbed. It would be hard to get there. And I like that there's also like this miracle that anyone who survived this ordeal. So it's ironic as well that we have oil surveyors out there because, I mean, that's almost poking fun at capitalism because we would be out here in the middle of nowhere of Mexico trying to find oil. So now let's go to the idea here of mixing animal or insect DNA isn't necessarily new either. This idea of taking glands from humans and putting them into animals or, you know, kind of vice versa could be seen in things like Captive Wild Woman. I believe the Ape Man also did some of this stuff with taking fluids from the animal and then putting it into humans. So I'm not fully sure if we've seen this done with spiders or insects off the top of my head as of yet. I know it'll happen after the fact, but I like this idea. There is a subplot here that experiments on women have succeeded so far. Now, Dr. Aranyan 
has a dwarf lab assistant portrayed by Angelo Rosacito. It is stated that this experiment failed here with him, and I do like the fact that Rosacito has an acting role here, as I know him from Freaks, as he is one of the little people in that one, even if it's uncredited here in Mace of Lost Women. So the problem that we have here is unfortunately this is boring. I'll then pull in filmmaking as to explain why. Part of this is that voiceover narration. It explains everything that we're watching. I get that this movie is 70 plus years old. The audience might need a little bit of help and have things explained. It also seems like the movie felt like they weren't smart enough so they led them along. Another issue is that nothing happens. There are attacks on the Mesa off screen. It focuses too much on an affair between Grant and Doreen which felt odd. The limited effects we get are cheesy. I will say that the landscape shots were good, so credit to the cinematography there. There just isn't a lot that happens, unfortunately. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, seeing all of these experiments out in the woods and like hiding and everything, that feels a whole lot to me like Island of Lost Souls when those have the uprising in that one and come after everybody. So that almost feels like this is borrowing from that. So all that's left then is acting. Coogan was solid as our mad scientist. It is an interesting move that he only has one eye. Not really sure what the purpose or why that decision was made, but it makes him look distinct at least. I would say Nixon, Travis, Chris, Pin, Martin, and John Martin are fine. The latter two were the only ones that kind of stuck out in their limited capacity. Talbot has a good voice, but I don't think we need his narration. I would say Hill, Knapp, Leck, and Stevens were solid as the group that we're following around. I also like Quinn and the other experiments, including Rosacito. The acting is fine across the board for just kind of what was needed here. Nobody really stands out, and they're not necessarily working with the best, but I do have some trivia here on the IMDb page that I'm going to give to you. Hoyt Curtin's original music score consisting solely of guitar, bass, and piano were recycled by director Edward D. Wood Jr. for his film Jailbait. The film was originally begun by Tevos as Lost Woman of Zarpa, but a variety of factors, funds running out, and neither of the producers nor the cast being able to get along with Tavos resulted in the production being shut down and then abandoned. A few years later, Ormond bought the film, shot some new footage, and released it as Mesa of Lost Women. That makes a whole lot more sense. Although it's ultimately rejected, the film was considered a possible choice for an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. In Catalan, Aranya means spider. The character of Dr. Aranyan and the spider people were added by Orman. Tebo's original story began with Masterson, who was merely a schizophrenic homicidal maniac at the Katina, where the dancer played by Quinn was merely was just a murder victim. The rest of the story is much of the same as seen in the film, minus the various scenes involving women and dwarves watching the crash survivors. The film ended with Mexican authorities responded to the flare Phillips shot fired off and landed on the Mesa, whereupon Phillips, Doreen, and Van Croft were rescued and the love triangle was resolved when Doreen chose Phillips over Van Croft. The name Tatarella for the dancer played by Quinn is an in-joke. Tantarella is both the Italian word for tarantula and the name of an Italian dance that is supposed to make the person doing it look like he or she has been bitten by a tarantula. Just before Dr. Leland Masterson shoots the frenzied dancer, Tantarella, in the cantina, it, he quotes a passage from the Bible, which looks like Kings 933. So they threw her down and some of the blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot, describing the violent death of Queen Jezebel. Riffed by the guys from Mystery Science Theater 3000 under Riff Tracks, Michael J. Nelson, Bill Corbett, and Kevin Murphy. So it actually explains why this movie is so boring to me because it looks like there's two things just meshed together and they didn't do the greatest job of that meshing. But I think this is still an interesting idea. This movie just falls flat for it. I like the mad scientist angle. Having this lab be isolated is also good. That feels almost Fu Manchu or James Bond villain-like. The sci-fi elements used work. The problem is that nothing happens. It focuses too much on this love triangle between Doreen, Grant, and Jan. Even worse is that the former and latter's wedding night, so that sucks. I just wanted a bit more of what we got, and it struggled to keep my attention. Not one that I can recommend giving a watch, unfortunately. The good aspects are just lacking. So my rating here for Mesa of Lost Women is going to be a 4 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Sure. And welcome back one last time here and just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff 
If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast related, you can send it via that way. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. Like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On Threads, I'm David OSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing, like my ratings on whatnot. I know for Letterbox, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non-horror alike. Instagram, I will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing. My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for threads. And then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast-related different stuff over there. And I'll also direct you to the Nightclub Discord channel as I have a little section over there where we have some good conversations. I post all of my reviews and any new podcast episodes or some of the things I'm watching when I actually have time to post that. So keep an eye out over there, and I'll have the link for that and everything else in the show notes there. And then I'm also going to direct you, a way that you can actually listen to the show is going to be through the Pod Nation TV. This is a streaming service and everything like that. There will be a link in the blog posts for all of my episodes if you'd like to listen to it that way. It's kind of a cool little thing. You can definitely do that through like Roku TV and there's some other apps for it as well. Just as another way for you to consume this podcast if you decide to. There's also a lot of other great shows that are on that network as well. And for my next episode, I'm actually going to run into a little bit of an issue is that I'm not actually going to have a Halloween episode this time around. Or I might figure out something to do where one of the mini reviews will be a Halloween type film and everything. Because I don't think there's any of the main franchise that I have not watched yet for review or anything. So let me figure that out. But next episode is also going to be where I'm going to the Nightmares Film Festival, so I will be doing that coverage again. I will have a, the feature reviews are going to be a bunch of mini reviews of all the things that I see there, kind of give you some of the thoughts, some of the things that were good and everything, and hopefully not too much of the negative there, but I will continue to watch mini reviews of other things as well. I'll get in another Traverse of the Threes rewatch. This one's going to be from a 93 film. I'll also try to see if I can find a 2023 rewatch on top of that. So, you know, there'll be a bunch of stuff on there, and I don't think there's anything else I need to get to speed with here. So I will say in closing is thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>